If you could all stand with me for the reading of God's word. Sorry. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you all, will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are lighter, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So Psalm 62, um, you'll notice this repeating refrain throughout the psalm, and I want to point it out before we really get into the text. Um, the refrain, and you, some of you might have this as a title in your uh, like the little header above the psalm. Uh, for me in my Bible, it says, my soul waits for God alone. And that word alone, or some translations say only, or some will say verily, or truly, or sincerely, that word appears six different times in this text of scripture. The first is in verse one, for God alone. In verse two, he alone. In verse four, the only plan. Verse five, for God alone. Verse six, he only. And then the last occurrence is a strange translation in the English, but it's the same word. Verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. That word but is the same word. Those of low estate are only a breath. They are just a breath. That's all they are. So that word, that occurrence, kind of sets in, in motion how we ought to read uh, in a poetic fashion this psalm. Kind of the main thrust, the main focus is in the a solitary stand that God has in our lives. It is God and God alone. Something that I find so interesting is how much we as Christians, if we live at all in the world today, wrestle with the idea of people who believe sincerely in false religions, people who believe sincerely in false doctrine and false gods. Here in this text, we see that uh, the psalmist, most likely David, writes that it is God alone and there is no other God. There's no other pathway which is to be had. Jesus says of himself that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no one who comes to salvation but by me. And then we have this modern movement in the Christian church that says that there are, in fact, many different paths to God. Not only are there many different paths, but in fact, if you press that idea too far, you'll find that they actually believe that all roads lead to God. That there is not just many ways to God, but there is every way to God. And God is not specific. He's not particularly holy. He's really just whatever we want him to be. And these people sometimes 
believe more sincerely in their false God than we do in our real God. And so then the question must be asked, what determines the success of belief? Is it the amount of faith that we can pour into it from our own hearts, the amount of certainty that we have about the thing that we believe in, or is it the object of our faith that determines its success? If you believe with all your might and all your heart and all your soul on something that's false, it does not make it true. And in the same way, if you believe only a minuscule amount in something that is true, and you have great doubt and great uncertainty, but you have faith in a certain object, an unchanging God, then you stand. Not because of your faith, but because of God. It is not the amount of faith that we bring to the table that determines our salvation, but the finished work of Jesus on the cross fully and finally, that determines our salvation. And David in this psalm gets to that idea when he says several different times over and over again, God alone or God only. And he goes out to expand this idea. So as we work through this text together, I want us to kind of have two main headings in which we look at this text. And he lays out in two contrasting ideas, things that you can trust in. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the conclusion on the front end. He says, first and foremost, that God is a fortress. God is a fortress. And he says, secondly to that, man is a delusion. There are two things that you can trust in. You can trust in God, the fortress, or you can trust in man, the delusion. Those are the options he lays out for us in this text. And we know where David lies. We know where the church lies. And I want to spell out for you why it's a good thing that we believe in God and God alone. God and God only. And so I'm going to start off in verse 1, and we're going to take a look at how David lays this out for us in the text. He says, verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. This first stanza, these first two verses, kind of pick apart this idea of what it is like to believe only in God or in God alone. He says, my soul waits in silence. And then he says he waits on God. That's an indication or an identification of confidence in what he is waiting for. You and I, when we struggle with anxiety or anxiousness or uncertainty, We tend to think about it a lot and with great unrest, wait for it. But he says that when he waits on God, his soul waits in silence. Or in other words, his soul waits without an internal turmoil because he has confidence in the sureness that it is God who he waits for. A God who is unfailing, who is unchanging, who has delivered him before. And no doubt David is drawing from his past experience and many of us know the story of David as it is laid out for us in scripture. But he has time and time again been delivered from his enemies. First from the lion when he was a shepherd, and then from Goliath on the battlefield, and then from Saul when he serves him in his court, and then from Saul again when he is ascending to the throne, and then from Saul again right before he serves foreign gods. And then when Saul's throne is stripped away and David finally takes power, David is saved from his own sin by God. 
And then finally, he's saved from Absalom. And then finally, he's established forever by God, and his kingdom will have no end, according to 2 Samuel 17. It says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And he says, from him comes my salvation. And he continues the idea in the second verse. He says, he alone is my rock and my salvation. That means God alone is the thing in which he finds his confidence. He says, God is his rock and his salvation. And he expands that idea further of what it is like for God to be a rock. And he says, he is my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then he skips over a few verses and he continues back in verse 5 with the same idea of what God is like, God being a fortress. So turn with me to verse 5. And he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. That's that same set of lines. And he continues the idea and he expands it further this time and he says, On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And then he concludes the idea in verse 8 when he says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And that's where I get the idea that God is a fortress. And that's the one idea, the one belief that David lays out for us. He says that God is a fortress. He says it's God alone, it's God only. And if you follow the idea, his unfolding thought, in verse 5 he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. And then you might be begging the question, Why, David, why do you wait in silence for God? And he expands the idea by that transitional word for. He says the reason I wait is because my hope is from him. The reason David says he waits on God is because God is his hope. And then the question is just right there. What do you wait for? The thing that you wait for is the thing that you hope for. If you wait for your career to take off before you'll have comfort and assurance, then that is the thing that you hope in. If you wait for security of some kind, be it by financial means or comfort means or some provision that you are waiting for, then that is the thing in which you look to for hope. Because David says he needs to wait for nothing else but God. And if God is the thing that he is waiting for, God is the thing that he is confident in. He says, he only is my rock, the firm foundation. And he says, he is my fortress. And that is really a a bigger idea. You remember David would hide in caves from Saul. He would hide in these cave outcroppings. That's where he would find safety. And in one such story, Saul walks into one of these caves. And you remember the story. David sneaks up on Saul and cuts off a piece of his robe. And he says God, for him, is like a rock. Like one of these caves that he can find shelter in. And he's a fortress, an impregnable position that stands unmoved against all siege. And if you want to know what this idea is like in the New Testament, we don't have to stick to the Old Testament with this. You can turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. And you will see this idea expanded further by Jesus himself. And Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, 
explains to us what it is like to believe in a firm foundation. And in Matthew 7, he lays out the idea, starting in verse 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. By contrast, verse 26 says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You see, our Lord Jesus, when he's doing this teaching in Matthew 7, He's drawing from the idea that David lays out in the psalm that God is a rock, a foundation that is unshakable, unmovable, and sure. And he says that whoever believes in him builds their house on the rock. And whoever does not believe in him builds their house on the sand. And what's interesting about that analogy, what I noticed this week is that it doesn't matter the skill of the laborer. It doesn't matter what crafts he uses after the foundation. In fact, it's kind of assumed in the story that they use similar crafts or similar ideas. But if you take the analogy far, Jesus is saying the difference between the two foundations is not in the crafting of the builder. It's not in the materials he uses. It's not in his architectural design. It's in the foundation that he builds on. That is the thing that determines the success of his foundation. Or in other words, it doesn't matter how well he builds on a shaky foundation Or as we were referring to earlier, it doesn't matter how much faith you have in a shaky, nothing God. It matters only the kind of God you believe in. Or rather, the only God who you can believe in. It doesn't matter how well you build. It matters what you build on. You can build a shanty house on the rock and it will stand through the storm. And you can build a luxury mansion on the sand. Same storm, mansion falls. And as he indicates for us in the text, great was the fall of the mansion. Great was the fall of that second builder. And both builders, it doesn't matter their confidence in their structure. The one who builds on the rock, it doesn't stand on the basis of his faith in its standing. It stands because it's on the rock. And the one who's on the sand, he can hope with all hope that it will stand against the rain, but it's built on the sand so it won't stand. And David says here in the psalm that God alone, God only, is his salvation. And that there's no other way to find a rock, there's no other way to find a fortress, there's no other way to feel rescued aside from God. And that idea of finding salvation in God is an idea that draws us to a rescuer. In fact, for many of us, as we live in the New Testament era, we believe that Jesus is the ultimate picture of that salvation. And whether David is directly implying that here or prophetically he is speaking about something he knows not fully about, he says that God is his salvation. Whether that be temporal deliverance from this particular crisis or whether that be deliverance from his sin, which he knows is an affront to God. He identifies God alone as his salvation. He says in verse 7, On God rests my salvation. 
Not on God and my faith rests my salvation. Not on God and my good works rests my salvation. Not on God and fill in the blank. Not on God and what I can do for him after he invests in me as a believer. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge, catch it again, is God. He's very clear about what he's speaking about. He's saying that there is no, there's no room for error here. There's actually no other foundation which is laid except that which is Christ. And the one who builds on it builds on that foundation. But the foundation was already laid. God is his salvation, and that's where he rests. Later theologians would call this idea the idea of monergistic salvation, which is the idea that God alone moves in the act of salvation. He says, on God rests my salvation, meaning not on God and the faith that I invest in God's investment, but he says, on God alone rests my salvation. That's what it says in the text. And as David unpacks this idea, the conclusion is foregone. He says, God is a fortress. As he says in verse 8, Trust in him, therefore, at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God is a fortress that we can rest in. This is the one lane that you can believe on. And you can put your confidence in it. God is a fortress. And he has two ideas that he draws from as he says how we ought to come to God. You noticed it first in verse 1 when he says, My soul waits in silence. And then you notice it again in verse 8 where he says, pour out your heart before him. And these ideas kind of take us to the two extremes of what prayer ought to be like. Prayer is both a silently waiting before the Lord, confidently waiting for him to be firm for us, to come through to deliver us. And it is simultaneously us trusting him and pouring out our heart before him for all of our needs, for all of our wants, for all of our desires, the things that we bring before God and that he hears and he answers as he sees fit. These take us to the two extremes of what it is like to believe on God. Not only do we believe that God will deliver us, but we also believe in a God who is so intimate that he cares to hear from us. And David believed in a God who cared to hear from him, so much so, in fact, that he turns and says, pour out your heart before him, all people. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. His implication is that it's not him exclusively accessing God, that he is in a unique place in sainthood where he can pray to God. But rather, he says, this is actually available to all the people who would hear it, all the people who would approach God. And again, the conclusion here is that the reason we pray to God, the reason you go before God, the reason you wait on God is that he is an unshakable fortress. He's a firm foundation. He's a mighty God. He's our refuge. And then the second idea here in the text that David lays out for us is that rather than being a fortress for us, the other belief is that man, the other option to believe in, man is a delusion rather than a fortress. Man is a delusion. You'll see it first with me in verse 3 of this psalm. He says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Now he's referring not to God anymore. He's talking to these hypothetical group that's assaulting him. He says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? 
like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. That's describing himself. He is the leaning wall or the tottering fence that's being assaulted. And the implication is that they're not satisfied with just him being pushed over or being slightly put down. They are seeking full takedown of David and his throne. And he says, almost mockingly, how long will you attack a man to batter him? Because as he's stated just a verse earlier, that God is his salvation. And the implication is, you can't knock me down because God is my salvation. You can't do anything to me. But he says here, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? Verse 4, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They're seeking his demise. And it says that they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. These people, the ones who seek to put down David, he describes them in a few different ways. But the first of those ideas is that they take pleasure in falsehood. Not only are they bent on destruction, but they are bent on destruction at the cost of everything. At the cost of truth, at the cost of reality, at the cost of anything that's real. They actually take pleasure in falsehood. No regard for truth. No regard for objective reality. This can describe all kinds of groups that we see in Scripture. The one that came to my mind as I was reading this is you can read about the Pharisees in John chapter 12, who after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus is standing around and bringing many people to faith in Jesus because he's now alive when he was dead. And now the Pharisees say, rather than believing on God for the sign that he just did, They've already started the plot to kill Jesus. They also turn around and plot to kill Lazarus to put away the evidence of Jesus' miraculous resurrection of Lazarus. They want to kill him to put away the evidence of an objectively verifiable fact. They're not seeking to disprove that Jesus brought Lazarus from the dead. That was completely undeniable. Remember, Jesus let him die and be dead for a while before he raised him so that news could spread of his death, so that his death could be sure. And then he raises Lazarus from the grave. And then the Pharisees, looking on all the available evidence, rather than repenting of their hardness of heart, dig themselves deeper and further into their lack of truth. And they take pleasure in the falsehood that they do. And they say, let's put Lazarus to death so we can be done with this Jesus. And that is strikingly similar to the people also who crucified Jesus. And on the night that they can't even find good witnesses to bring him to trial, witnesses who can't even corroborate on the evidence, but yet nevertheless they bring witness after witness after witness in front of the court. And all these witnesses have varying accounts of what Jesus said and who he claimed to be. And they're just falsifying information to try to get a conviction. The same Pharisees. And by the way, the people who are falsely testifying are the same Jewish people who were a few days earlier saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord, as he walked into the holy city. These are people who take pleasure in falsehood. They took great joy in their ability to fabricate a mock trial, a sham with no evidence, and put to death the Son of God. And they took pleasure in what they did. And David identifies prophetically here that these people are the same all the way around. They always take pleasure in falsehood. In fact, this is a mark of someone who is against God because God is a God of truth. And so he does not like 
falsehood. He's not a God of confusion. In him there is no deception. He can't even tempt people, as we read in the meditation this morning. And so, here it is, that they love falsehood. And he continues the idea by saying they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Meaning they say one thing and they believe another. Or maybe they say something to Jesus to his face, and then when they turn around, when they're in their own group of people, they curse him and they are so upset that they can't get the better of this guy. And maybe Saul was very similar, where he said to David, I will be faithful to you, I won't attack you. And inwardly, he's cursing the fact that he can't thwart this person who's going to take his throne away from him. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly, they curse. These are people who love falsehood. And he continues the idea of saying what it is like to trust in man. David says, if you trust in man, man is false. They love falsehood. They'll tell you to your face that they love you, but they'll curse you internally. And he continues the idea in verse 9 where he says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. What he's saying here is that all of mankind is untrustworthy. Matter of fact, if you find mankind to be trustworthy, be reminded that they are a breath and a delusion. The word here in the original isn't uh, different for low estate and high estate. Rather, this is a poetic unpacking of the full scope of humanity is like this. They are a breath meaning they are nothing, they are vanity, as we see in Ecclesiastes. But also, he says, those of high estate, even the ones who seem to be established, the kings, the rulers, the authorities, the powers, they are a delusion, meaning they are self-deceived into thinking they have power, and they deceive others into thinking they also carry power. As Jesus kindly points out to Pilate on his trial, you would have no authority if it had not been given to you from my Father. And Pilate needed to be reminded of that fact because he says to Jesus, I can actually release you. And Jesus says, no, you can't. Because the authority that you have is from God. And he challenges the idea that Pilate has deluded himself into believing that he actually commands power apart from God. But all authority on heaven and earth was given to Jesus. And now we have those same powers, those same authorities, those same rulers who are a complete delusion mocking God, saying he's out of date, out of step, and he needs to get with the culture. And those same powerful people are completely deluded. They falsify truth, they take pleasure in their lies, they take pleasure in their deception, and they are, to be reminded to us, they are a delusion. Nothing. And he says that not only are they but a breath, but he actually unpacks the analogy further. He says, in the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Now, what he's saying here in verse 9 is if actually if you were to take all the people that I just talked about, all of mankind, put them on one end of the scale, and then put breath on the other end of the scale, mankind is the end of the scale that tips. Breath is more weighty than mankind. And what he's unpacking there metaphorically is that they're actually nothing. They're a delusion. They're a breath. Actually, they're not even a breath. I have a better description. They're lighter than a breath. They are more vain even than that. God is rooted, remember, a rock, an established fortress. Mankind, by contrast, loses to breath in terms of weightiness. And he says here that, therefore, verse 10, put no trust in, and he's going to list off a few things. All of these things are things that mankind can produce on their own. 
put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery, and in fact, even if your riches increase, set not your heart on them. Mankind, with their deluded sense of power, exploits the oppressed, exploits the poor, and robs them and extorts them and steals from them and takes from them. In fact, most of the Old Testament prophets speak against the kings who do these very things to the people of Israel. And then he says, but even if it's an honest earning of wealth, even if your riches increase, the implication there being in an honest manner, set not your heart on them. Why? Because riches, just like everything else that man produces, is not even to be put on the same scale as God. God is a rock. Riches, mankind, all that they produce, nothing. They don't even hold any weight. He says, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Timothy writes, he says, as for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't trust in riches. Don't trust the riches of this age. Don't trust your establishment. Don't trust your career. But rather trust in God. Why? Because God can richly provide if he wants to. God can establish you if he so chooses. Riches are not worth your heart. Only God is. The other thing that this brings to mind is another story that Jesus tells us about in Matthew 19 about the rich young ruler. In Matthew 19, Jesus encounters this man and he says, he comes to Jesus, remember, with the question. He says, uh, what must I do to be saved? He says, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus says, have you kept the law? And he says, which ones? And Jesus tell, lists out the law. And he says, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus calls his bluff, knowing that this man doesn't love his neighbors. And he says, you've really kept the law and this should be no problem for you. One more thing to do. Give all that you possess. Give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And the young man asked himself the question, is Jesus really worth all of my attained riches? And his conclusion, as we read in 22 of that same chapter, is that he goes away sorrowful, for he has a great many possessions that he has, unfortunately, entrusted his heart with. And we are here told and warned by David to not put our heart on riches. Don't put your heart on your career. Don't put your heart in friendships. Don't put your heart in relationships. Don't put your heart in anything actually besides God. And everything that you put your heart in when you put your heart after God and chase after his kingdom, it says he'll provide for you. It says he will graciously give us all things. But if you look at the thing that God gives you and you start to worship that thing, the Old Testament calls that idolatry, rightly so. And we start to falsely worship things that were always intended to point us back to God. When God blesses Abraham richly and he blesses him with a son, he then asks him for that very same son in return. And Abraham does what he rightly should have done, which is to give God freely back what he already gave him. Job rightly acknowledges that all of the riches he had to begin with were God's. He says, I came into this world with nothing, and with nothing I shall die. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can we not both get and receive from God both good 
and bad things. And here, David warns us, if we have riches, if they increase, don't put your heart on them because they will fail you. Maybe in this lifetime they won't fail you, but if you start to trust in them, maybe you'll realize at the end of this lifetime you've trusted in something that wasn't only God. And David says he only trusts in God, and that's actually the only thing worth trusting in. And he then concludes, he says that God is a fortress, man is a delusion, choose who you're going to believe in, what are you going to trust? And he says that in verse 11, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to the Lord. He's reaffirming what he's already said. And that you, O Lord, that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. He says that God has spoken and that we have heard what God has spoken, that David has heard what God has spoken. And what God has spoken is that power belongs to him, him alone. David could be referencing a great many things here. I think he's referencing uh, God as he reveals himself to the people of Israel through Moses. When When he meets Moses in the burning bush and he says, I am that I am. And in Exodus chapter 20, when God delivers out his Ten Commandments, and the implication there is that power is God's. Why? Because there are Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions or the Ten uh, Take-It-As-You-Wills. The Ten Commandments. That God can command his creation to do the right thing. And that when God speaks, it's different than when we speak. When God speaks, he speaks objective reality into existence. When God speaks, he reveals only true things. When God speaks, the world bends to obey what God says. When you and I speak, when people hear us, they have the right to evaluate what we say and compare it to a standard of truth. When I speak, you all have the right to listen and hear and compare it to what is objectively true about the world. If I say some fact and you know that that's not true, you can evaluate what I said versus the fact and compare those things. When God speaks, that's objectively true. We have no right to evaluate what he said. And many of us today take our morality and we put it on God in the Old Testament and we say, that can't be right because, and then we compare God to our modern morality or our modern senses. And the implication in verse 11 is that we have no right to do that. When God speaks, we listen Why? Because power belongs to God. And as David's been unpacking for us, when he says power belongs to God, it means power does not belong to man, the thing he's contrasting here. And he affirms that God is different than man, because remember, man, when he has power, extorts. He steals, he robs, he takes. When God has power, verse 12, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. God is loving kind, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, faithful to his people, even though we sin and fall again and again and again. And he says when God has power, that's actually a good thing because he is just and righteous and holy. Obviously, when man has power, we know what man does with power. They extort, they rob. But when God has power, it's actually great news for all his creation. And at the end of days... God will have ultimate power and his creation will ultimately be satisfied in the work 
that he does in the judgment that he makes, in the new creation that he builds, in all of his works. And then here at the end of this text, I want to spend just a moment on this. When he says this statement, he says, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And then he says, for you will render to a man according to his work. And I remember when I was a kid growing up in Bible study and learning the different Bible verses you tend to memorize when you grow up in church, Romans, when it says, the wages of sin is death. And Paul tells us that. And here David says that you will render to a man according to his work, but we know that Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And so is this supposed to be a comfort or is this supposed to be a condemnation? But fortunately, Paul also addresses this exact same verse and he exegetes it for us. So I'm just going to turn to Paul's theology for a minute. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, Paul brilliantly unpacks what is said here. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 6. He says, He will render to each one according to his works. That's exactly what we just read. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So here Paul has unpacked for us what it means when he says that those he will render to each according to his works. He's saying that there's a group that's going to work and labor for immortality, for eternal life, for glory, for honor. And there's another group who's going to labor for self-seeking, denial of the truth, unrighteousness. And for them, it'll be wrath and fury. But for the first group, they will actually achieve and get eternal life. And so Paul unpacks this idea a lot in Romans, but the question is pretty obvious here, which is how is it possible that a man through his own works could achieve this? He says that he will render to a man according to his works, and then he says that those men who labor in a certain way achieve a certain end. And in the beginning, God makes a covenant with mankind, with the first Adam, and he with that covenant says, if you obey all my commandments, you will dwell in this garden. Everything will be great. But if you don't obey my commandments, if you eat of that one tree, everything's broken. We call this the covenant of works, which means that our success is determined on our works, on our actions. Meaning, Adam was totally fine, not subject to sin, until he sins, and now he stands condemned under the covenant of works, under that law. God says, you can do this, but you can't do that. Adam does that thing, and he has transgressed the first covenant, which was made with mankind, the covenant of works. And then God, in his grace, is patient, and he waits. But at the curse of Adam and Eve, he says to the serpent, the very first gospel, he says that, I will put enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring, and that you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And this is the inauguration of what we would call the covenant of grace, which is the idea that God made an amendment to the first covenant. 
that although all mankind falls short of the covenant of works, there is a second covenant, the covenant of grace, which doesn't undo the first covenant. In fact, it fulfills the first covenant in every possible way. But the covenant of grace says that under the headship of Adam, all who are under Adam die because they die in their works. But under the headship of a perfect man who fulfills the covenant of works perfectly, the covenant of grace says that that perfect man can stand in the place of sinful man and die in the place of sinful man. And in his covenant of grace, he inaugurates it to the people of Israel through the Old Testament sacrificial system. Paul has a clear understanding of this idea as well in Romans, and he unpacks in Romans 5 what it's like to be under the old Adam and the new Adam. And here, as we read in this text, when he says, you will render to a man according to his work, we are reminded of the fact that God actually did render to Jesus according to his work. God renders to Jesus eternal life and resurrection because he comes and he perfectly fulfills all of the law's requirements, all of the law's statutes, in perfect obedience to God, in perfect submission to the Father. He resurrects from the grave. And why was he killed again? Because he stood in our place. Jesus fulfills the covenant of works, and then he, through his righteousness, imputes or puts on his good works to us through the covenant of grace. And so when David says here, for you will render to a man according to his work, and Paul unpacks it for us in Romans chapter 2, the implication is not that we are earning anything through our works. The implication is that Jesus Christ has already earned and that we strive in faith after Jesus, believing on his finished work on the cross, that God only saves, that on, his re- that on him rests our salvation, And he says that he will render to each according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and for honor and for immortality. He will give eternal life because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that those who seek those things will find them if they seek for them in God. If they seek for them in God only. But the other implication is that those who do not seek for those things will actually get exactly what their works earn them which is the wrath and the fury of God. And that through this text, we have a clear picture of how David understood the gospel. How David understood salvation to work. Because he says in this text that salvation belongs to God. And then he says that, for you will render to a man according to his work. And you remember that story about the rich man and Jesus. When Jesus says, have you kept all the commandments. And the rich man in his self-delusion says, yes, he misses the point of the law. Because the purpose of the law is not to fulfill it, it's to point us to our inadequacy in being able to fulfill it. David rightly understands the law. In Psalm 51, David says, I would give sacrifices, but you don't want them. A broken spirit and a contrite heart, these are the sacrifices of God. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Forgive me For my transgression against you and you alone have I sinned. David rightly understands the whole law because the law points us to our inadequacy. And the rich young ruler misunderstands the law because he sees them as a series of boxes to check to achieve righteousness. And when Jesus calls out the rich man for his ignorance, 
the rich man says that he has checked all the boxes and Jesus challenges him directly and says, have you really? And the rich man walks away upset, broken over the fact that he actually has not checked all the boxes. Because if he had, he would have been easily able to give away all of his wealth. Because in the law, it says that you shall have no other gods before me. And this young man has money as a god before Jehovah. And David rightly understands that to render to a man according to his work, that God is just, and that he renders to Jesus according to his work, and that ultimately you and I who stand in Jesus, he will render to us not our work, but his work, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that brings us full circle in this idea of God alone, which is not that you and I have an inordinate amount of faith or a perfect faith or that we're perfect in our doctrine or we're perfect in our articulation of that faith. But he says you have to have your faith in the right thing. You have to have your faith in God alone. And you can't have God plus something else. Remember that covenant of work says you need to live a perfect life. And so if you try to add to Jesus' finished work with your works, you're only going to pollute his finished work because the covenant demands perfection. And so if you add your works to Jesus' works, you're actually going to transgress the covenant. You're going to screw everything up. So Paul says, don't try to do that. Trust in his finished work alone. Trust in his finished work alone. And don't be like that rich young ruler who is self-deceived, but reflect on the fact that we fall short, but that Christ has, in his perfect sufficiency, died the death that we deserved, lived the life that we should have, resurrected from the grave, and then he turns around to call a great many brethren to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the text. I thank you that you have given us through your sovereignty and through your goodness this word for us this evening. Lord, I thank you that on the examination of this scripture that we know that we can trust in no other work except the finished work of Jesus. That we can trust in nothing else, that our salvation lies in no other place but you and you alone. And that is a good and a comforting thing for our salvation to be with you. Lord, I thank you that you have not given us according to the works that we actually do, but through your steadfast kindness and through your steadfast love, you have given to us according to Jesus' works. And Lord, I pray that you would guard us from falsely becoming convinced that we can somehow add to the finished work of Jesus, that we can somehow improve upon the perfect, sinless lamb. Lord, I pray that you would uh, provide great comfort in this truth for us. That we would not see this as a, a great shame that we cannot provide anything, but Lord, we would see it as a great comfort because there is nothing that we can do. It's all you, Lord. It's all your salvation, and it's all for your glory. Amen.